Hello, you're listening to Global Local, the podcast that brings you local solutions to global challenges. I'm Ingrid Kohler. Global Local comes to you from the Local Government Information Unit. We're a think tank and local government membership body. We're nonpartisan, nonprofit, and passionate about localism. Recently, the Global Local Recap, our free newsletter, focused on indigenous communities and local government. Indigenous communities around the world have often faced significant challenges in terms of accessing vital local public services, adequate representation, and meaningful dialogue with institutions on important policy issues. Representation matters. And because local government is that tier of government that deals most often with people's everyday lives, representation there really matters. I talked with Winnipeg City Councilor Sherry Rollins, an Indigenous woman in a city with a significant Indigenous population, about that representation and a lot more. Hello, Ingrid, and thank you very much for having me on your show. I'm Sherry Rollins. I'm Wendat, Wyandot. Uh, I know you're American, so I'm going to say Wyandot, as they do in the States, uh, with a little Anishinaabe Miami mixed in. Uh, my family never left what is now the Windsor-Detroit border, or Wendat territory. So amongst my third, fourth, sixth grandparents and so on, I'm an Indigenous woman. And thanks to family chief Judy Quaidenton pigeon kukowski and Chief Ted Roll, I know I am Deer Clan. And for her, I say kwe, buzu to you, when that indeed, and when we part. Ingrid, I'm going to wish you skino blessings, as they have taught me um, as a profound act of resilience. But I don't work anywhere near the Windsor-Detroit border. I live in Winnipeg. Uh, I'm not on the Wendat territory or uh, near the Wyandot uh, of Michigan. I grew up in Ottawa, but I'm a Winnipegger now, a Manitoba Canadian and my day job is the city councillor for Fort Rouge East Fort Gary, and I also serve a citywide chair as chairperson of protection, community services, and parks. Winnipeg is uh, the traditional homeland of the Métis Nation and Treaty 1 territory. Thank you, Sherry. And tell us a bit more about, about Winnipeg. If someone's never been there, like me, what would I expect to see in Winnipeg? You would expect to see all that this Treaty 1 territory has to offer. We are a river city. We are a human rights city. We have a beautiful human rights museum. So you would see some of the human rights challenges, opportunities, threats in our beautiful museum on Israel Asper Way at a place that I represent uh, called The Forks, which is both a national park and it's going to be a neighborhood right near a very old and beautiful train station called Union Station. You will see the most beautiful art created in the whole entire world at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, and you would see a very vibrant cultural and arts community. It is worth a visit, Ingrid, and I think I've already invited you. You have, you have. (laughs) It does. It sounds wonderful. And like, maybe one day when I can like travel again, I feel brave enough to travel again. Um, then I'd love, I'd love to come. We have a very strong mixture of sports and arts and culture. Um, I, of course, like to go to the theater, ballet, and experience uh, our beautiful art museums and 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 see art galleries. Um, but there, we do have world renowned sports teams, the Winnipeg Jets, our hockey team, and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, uh, as well as 
uh, baseball teams and soccer teams and more. So we do, or as, as you say, football. So we do have a really important mix of, of this winter city and uh, this beautiful city. Fantastic. And if anyone hasn't been to, uh, the, as, as you say here, ice hockey game, I would I would definitely recommend it. It is it is a blast, but I am more of a museum goer than a sports goer. But yeah. I love that you I, just called it ice hockey. I forgot that part. <laughs> yeah, to me, um, hockey is played on ice, yeah. but um, here hockey is played on grass. <laughs> yeah. It's a different, slightly different game. Going to the rink and uh, watching ice hockey is just—it is absolutely a blast. Um, so I would uh, recommend that. But um, yeah, go to Winnipeg. So I wanted to talk to you as an Indigenous woman, Indigenous woman, Windat. Um, I'll use that since you're from Canada and in local government. What difference does that make to representation? You know, there's just not enough representation at all, generally speaking. When I got my job, I was firmly cognizant that I made up, for instance, 20 to 24 percent of women who make it to political office at all. And that doesn't feel good uh, ever. So uh, while I think it's important to know, I, along with a councillor called Kevin Klein and Mayor Brian Bowman of the city of Winnipeg, are all Indigenous people. That's probably the largest amount of Indigenous people City Council in Winnipeg has ever seen. And I think it's also important to note and fair to say that we're all white passing. So that is uh, important because that means that we have to assert in order for anyone to even know. Right. Right. And and so that takes me aback. When I was on the doorsteps asking for the job of city councillor, my job that I held was at the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, the national inquiry was one that revealed persistent, deliberate human rights violations and abuses that are ongoing now. Uh, the root causes was colonialism, but also meant staggering rates of violence for Indigenous women, girls, and to us LGBTQ2IA people, gender diverse people. So I was working there at the time. I'd knock on the door. People absolutely asked me, well, what are you going to do about, for instance, the Truth and Reconciliation Calls to Action. Um, I had also worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And when I started by just simply saying where I worked, Ingrid, they would take three steps back. And in an election, retail politics, that's a really bad sign. And this was this was pre-pandemic. So we were not <laughs> meters apart. You know, it's actually a better sign when they come closer, when they actually physically touch you, you actually know that you have a vote. So it was actually a really bad sign. And I thought, uh-oh, this is impossible to be upfront about who I am as an Indigenous woman and, and get elected. I persisted. I did get elected. But really upon election day and beyond any time that, you know, this work comes to the fore, I'm, I'm, I am literally written and told not to do it. Or, um, you know, my, my non-status status is questioned. And, you know, but still I persist. So, I, I mean, I think that that's my experience as a woman in particular in office uh, and an Indigenous woman at that. That is so interesting because I think when particularly when you're talking about the violence against Indigenous women and girls and, you know, it was a big issue raised in, in Canada a number of years ago, a, a really horrific tale and i i that that as you say is ongoing but in a way 
the very fact that it's kind of linked with Canada is because it was raised as an issue in Canada and, you know, highlighted and spotlighted, whereas it's an issue in lots of places, but maybe it's not brought up. It sure is. In India, in Australia, more, right? In, in, in all, in many countries that have been, been impacted adversely by colonialism, Indigenous women and girls all over the world have a story. Yeah, and but yeah. in Canada where it's the, you know, like it's been brought up, it's been, okay, not addressed as, as and certainly not fixed, but addressed at any rate, maybe it gives people, I don't know, a sense of, of guilt or you know, I just wonder, you know, why that, that, that step back is, is, is just really interesting. Is it, is it a step back? Because me as a white person, like, I don't want to confront that. I don't want to confront that history. I don't want to confront you know, uh, me, yeah. I, I will even especially say me as a white person who has, you know, born and raised in North America, uh, have had family roots that go back nearly half a millennium. But still, that's not I am not indigenous, you know, like I'm not part of the indigenous population of that area. So like, I, yeah, I don't know. How do you deal with that? Well, I mean, for me, my work and how I ran is you know, I do what I say I was going to do, right? The report that later came out a year after I was elected of the National Inquiry, uh, I flew to Ottawa Hall to receive, um, or get snow, sorry. And, you know, the, the, the transformation calls to justice, the social changes, the calls to justice or the calls to action that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission detailed in 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 reports and and missing and murdered indigenous women and girl in two volumes really detailed both the the crisis that devastated indigenous communities across the country but they call on all governments and of course all of a sudden i am elected to one of those all governments municipal level local level to do the work and so it was it was work i brought with me i brought with me the truth and reconciliation calls to action and certainly um having worked there the important piece was to encourage reconciliation but ground that in truth there's there's no reconciliation without truth and the revelations of genocide that is still not fully uncovered is i think why people take three steps back in canada in the united states Graves of children are being uncovered, uh, and and you know the same weeks that we had graves of children, something that was absolutely known that we would find following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports. This was absolutely a truth we knew was in the ground, and that was ten years ago. Uh, hard to believe, but I literally had my baby boy in my tummy while I was working there. So he's 10 now, he's turning 11. But that systematic abuse of children and families that has the modern day roots in the child welfare system in both Canada, Australia, the United States, and more, that's a very difficult truth to say, very difficult for all people to grapple with. You know, there has been trauma in both, and we've watched in the United States and in Canada, Australia, and more that does take you aback, that, that is upsetting. And so um, leading through that is is daunting for sure. 
and it is a lot of pressure. But I have a lot of beautiful elders that um, have stepped in, helped, and and beautiful sisters in the struggle, like Rebecca Chartrand that you mentioned, that uh, Hilda Hilda Anderson Pierce, who who works uh, with MMIWG families and amazing electeds in Manitoba, uh, including Wab Canoe, Nahani Fontaine, Bernadette Smith, and more, who Amanda Laughlin, and more, who who have worked long worked in this space, long led, and, um, and will continue to do so. So I'm not alone in it. And we, you know, we work territorially and, and we just try to get the job done. It's, it's slow going sometimes though, especially when many governments, including provincial governments are not working as fast as you'd like them to, or the federal government. I mean, those are the emotive issues, but let's talk about some of the practical issues about why it's it's difficult for Indigenous people and and maybe even especially Indigenous women to uh, to get elected to um, at the local or or at other government levels. Sure. Well, I think the roots of why it's hard for anyone not involved, typically white cisgender male to get involved in politics is uh, because, you know, there is very strong prejudicial <laughs> forces that are acting upon you. As, as, as a woman, you know, I can pass maybe seven motions on homelessness. There are times where I have to phone up my male colleague and say, could you please tell administration that I absolutely won them? So sometimes my winning is different, Right. When 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 you win win as a woman, it's automatically dismissed as as easy, right? Whereas when you win as a man, it's triumphant and has something to do about your work and your success. And so there's all these barriers and unwritten rules and stigmas that it's somehow easier if you win as a woman. I had to get you know, the same 600 votes to get past the post as, as the next person. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, like more than, you know, the nine other people that ran, um, more people will run against you even. Right. You know, and less people will work for you. I had amazing support, including for, from, um, many former chiefs actually that, um, that were my political mentors, uh, m- many of them male. Right, Jim Bear, uh, who had been chief, Phil Fontaine, who had been chief, and and uh, more came to my aid and support during the campaign and after the campaign. And 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 as a woman, you need men to help you in the campaign because many women also don't help behind the scenes. And so, you know, I have girlfriends who who asked me to run, who supported me to run, but then necess- didn't necessarily help me only to see them helping a guy, calling for a guy, you know, in the next provincial election. And you think, what happened? <laughs> how come How come you didn't work with, for me la- that way? And so there's, there, there is still, you know, really troubling stigmatism and, and prejudice against women running generally. And then you add on complexity of indigeneity or being a black, brown person and it, it it it's 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 even it's even more difficult. I'm not talking about me, obviously, in terms of black brown people, but I, you know, being in it, you know, an Asian woman, one of one of the women I'm helping to run for 
or member of parliament, you know, reached out, it it is more difficult. And, and so you just, you know, you end up wanting to create more baby politicians and you end up wanting to, you know, digging in and wanting to assist others in, in their pursuit of politics. Uh, but, you, you know, the reality is 20% make it to municipal government and that's too few. So now that you're in office, mm-hmm. uh, especially uh, representing a, a place like Winnipeg, which has a, a a relatively high proportion of Indigenous uh, people who live there within within the city, the largest. What difference? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. what what is the percentage? So while Indigenous people make up four point nine percent of the total population in Canada according to twenty sixteen census in Winnipeg. We have the largest Indigenous population in the country, over 12 to 15 percent of Indigenous people in in Winnipeg. This means that you need to have a strategy in place, uh, or or it makes it even more important to have a strategy in place to engage with Indigenous communities in in your city. Um, And and how, how... whether I mean whether like you you are indigenous yourself or or if you're not you still need to engage with people in your in your local area so how does that happen in a place like Winnipeg well I mean Ingrid that's a really important point in terms of why we need representation in office is those relationships that people come with so whether you're um, a city councillor like my colleague, Councillor Sharma, who has really deep and meaningful roots in 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 many communities, uh, or you're the first Black councillor, like my friend Marcus Chambers, you're you're bringing new relationships to City Hall, and 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 that's why representation matters. Um, or you're a woman and you have a lot of sister friends in the city, right? It it it's, it really representation does matter, and so for sure. Um, given where I worked across the country or, or within the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or relationships that I'd built doing Section 35 consultations um, in in my provincial government roles when I spent 11 years as a federal government public service and a provincial public servant, um, those, those relationships were really key. They were really key to mentorship, as I had said before, in terms of relationships I'd built over time with, with, with chiefs. Um, but they were also key with respect to provincial territorial organizations and government in Manitoba, whether it was uh, First Nation government, the Manitoba Métis Federation uh, government, or local community-based organizations like Mama Way, Gani Kanuchik, and uh, in Dunaway and more who serve Winnipeggers have long since worked in the social services space and, you know, really rapidly needed given the realities of Winnipeg and the struggles in, in, for instance, you mentioned homelessness and housing, which is, which are are huge priorities of mine, hadn't had a very mature relationship with the city of Winnipeg. And so it, it, it absolutely does affect your agenda, right? As a, as a woman, I came in wanting to support women of the city who had really the most impact of colonialism and the largest amount of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls were found here. That's why the inquiry was really born here of of really important work from from activists in this city, um, women who had gone looking for women, you know, that were were missing and hurt. And and, uh, so, you know, 
my work, for instance, on 24-7 safe spaces and making sure that they were 24 and seven days a week, right? 24 hours and seven days a week, which oftentimes they're not, making sure that there was a million dollar grant over the next four years to provide, you know, that service. Again, still not 24-7, unfortunately, but more than we had and sometimes seven days a week. Um, was really built around that agenda and and the fact that representation matters, housing, and the in particular difficulties that non-status Indigenous women have had when they get for whatever reason their status denied or or get kicked off reserve or come to the city for various reasons, and then end up on welfare. Uh, social housing, particular William White neighborhood, for instance, where, you know, many women who had lost their status or had were non-status found themselves. And then the social supports around that, like Andrew's Family Street Center and and more that that you you know, you know, intimately you've worked. I, I worked with the school division. Um, that's how I know Rebecca Chartrand and and her amazing work is 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 that you're you're working with community and and that's really key for local government. I mean that's the gem. That's where all the good motions happen, right? Is is and are built. They're built in community, not really in city hall. Even though city hall is great and and you write motions there too, but the ones built with community, the ones that the community need and want, those are the strongest motions. Um, and when you get them through council, that's where the local government really makes its magic. And that's what really attracted to me to local government actually um, was the ability to work with community-based organizations and really reflect what their needs were in at, at the city. And and that work, of course, is still not got done. So I'm going to run for another term, <laughs> and, and to get back there. But it it is it is really um, you know the piece, and it's the piece. Interestingly enough, I think that um, I mean you need structures of reconciliation, you need structures of work, and we need to rebuild government in many ways to reflect um, this Treaty One territory, the traditional homeland, and the Métis Nation, and this Indigenous land that was never ceded, right? We, we need structures. So we build more collaborative methods of governance. We did that actually with Treaty 1 First Nations and local government across in, in, in Treaty 1 this term. Um, we, we've done really important structural work like the Indigenous Accord um, in the city of Winnipeg. It was actually a innovation of another city in Manitoba that we took uh, and, and, and it, that's a, a key structure. And and so you keep you you keep working that way, um, like I like I said, territorially in order to get the job done. And so I, I think representation really matters because you you really sometimes can work differently and with new and different people and that um, and new and different leaders and that that I think makes a huge difference and in, and influences government in a really positive way. Yeah, and I think um, from the outside of government as well, being able to see someone who represents who you are by identity makes government feel more approachable, makes um, makes you feel like government will listen to your concerns, that your politicians will understand your story, where you're coming from. Um, and, that, and that can make a huge, huge difference too to, to people who are living in, in communities, no matter who they are. Um, but but obviously you you represent everyone who lives in your in your ward area and 
um, you're part of the city and the city as a whole. Yeah. And so part of the work, too, is is translating some of the objectives and goals to to non-Indigenous Winnipeggers. And and that can be interesting work, too. I mean, when we talk about those three steps back, you know, folks, sometimes the three steps back were from the people who prioritized work with Indigenous people, work with Indigenous community-based organizations, and and really wanted to see uh, work done amongst the most socially and economically disadvantaged groups in Winnipeg, you know, which, you know, I would say is off-reserve and non-status Indigenous people. And so they, they really wanted to see work on homelessness, for instance, many of the homelessness, a disproportionate amount of people that are sleeping unsheltered, in Winnipeg are Indigenous people. And so some of that step back was as was really, I think, a reflection of, of, of wanting to see work move forward. Obviously, um, not for your seat, <laughs> but what advice would you give to people who want to run for local government? Well, I start early and educate brownie troops on electioneering and campaign school. That's a that that is part of my full service job as city councilor is is and I mean it when I create baby politicians I mentor folks too, um, and and I'm going to create a gathering before this term ends of all the women on council to really you know it, regardless of the political spectrum because we don't all share the same uh, space in the political spectrum the women of council but um, we're going to get together and really you know really. If you're interested in politics, we're, we're going to listen to you. I participate in Equal Voice, uh, which is trying to increase women's representation. Uh, and and so, you know, in shows like this, you know, that's it's really important to talk about what is still, I think, not talked about enough, which is, you know, how women run, how Indigenous women run and 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 how we increase representation in local government and all government and and and, and how you do that really is. Um, I think well documented by making sure you're running and and having people run in school trusteeship or for boards, right? Um, and making sure there's representation on all your boards. And so, and then if 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 you're not represented, really making sure that you're stepping up from the boards and asserting that you're you're serving on local boards, whether they are elected or non-elected, I think it's really important that you're stepping up and getting known in the community and 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 doing the work of boards. They they say women run to do something and men run to be something. I think that's a little sexist, but I also think, in my opinion, it's true. If you're born to think, well, I'm just going to be a politician when I grow up and that, or or I'm just going to be an astronaut because that's the job I want, it's one thing. But if you want to actually do something, it, it, it's it's different. And women are attracted. You recruit them by saying, look, we need to get a definable housing structure for, for Winnipeg done. So are you are you going to City Hall to do that with me or no? Right. You you recruit them by saying, yeah, we need we need to really address the violence on city streets and and women and and women need to assert themselves in public space <laughs> in this city whether they're older or younger and and to and and you have a particular voice to be able to do that you've particular experience to be able to design that 
or or create the places um, that and feelings of safety that are necessary to to have a big beautiful city that everyone can enjoy. And so, you know, that's how I start when I'm mentoring people to get into public office. Uh, I also really think that folks need to be encouraged to work behind, in front, and in all spaces in political avenues. Behind the scenes is is which I used to do as as uh, I was a political staffer at one time. I worked uh, most of my career as a senior policy analyst. Uh, so so I already knew my why. I already knew why I was going. I knew you know the pieces and the structures I was going to create because I was a policy analyst. But but for 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 other folks that come from different career bases, you know that might be really different. And so. I think, you know, being able to attract folks in smaller levels of of governance, whether it's locally elected boards or non-elected boards, I think that that is really critical. I think people need to learn how to knock doors. It's really unrealistic to think of yourself as a politician if you've never knocked doors or done some of the retail aspects of of political work. Um, And I think it builds a very odd politician, too, if you're not into meeting people. Um, I will say as an extrovert, meeting thousands and thousands of people in the months that you do in an election brought me out of my comfort zone. Your hands hurt. My voice got sore. But that's how you know you're going to win, too. And so go go knock doors is 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 really important. Knocking on your neighbor's doors, serving in parent advisory council if you're a mom, um, but on on boards is is really important. Really knowing your center is is really why you should run. Knowing knowing why you're there is really important if you're a man or a woman. And if you're a politician that doesn't know your center, that has no idea why they run doesn't have priorities and plans, really, you can tell. <laughs> These are not my favorite colleagues uh, across the country and, and, and at City Hall when they really don't know why they're there, what they're planning to accomplish, and they're not crushing their goals, right? And and so there's some skills that you learn on a board, uh, including money management skills and, and how to make decisions. Uh, we all know politicians who are incapable of making decisions, and that's also, I think, a disaster in office. I like an honest broker in office. So, I mean, I certainly have preferences of what I like to see in a politician. I think you need to be asked to run. I think representation is key. Um, I don't think you need to be asked to run by, you know, the traditional way that everyone asks you, especially if you're a woman, especially if you're an Indigenous woman, especially if you're um, Black, Brown, especially if you come from a community that is not represented in in office, um, if you're a gender diverse person, um, if you're a person living with a disability, you know, you, you might not be asked by the traditional people or the traditional power base to run, but you still should. And so that's a little controversial um, to say, I think you need to be asked to run. It is representative democracy. Um, but I think be careful on who's asking you, right? And, 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 and really, uh, you know, understand that. Uh, and I'll say many men never are asked to be run. When you ask them, who are the constituencies that are really prompting this? It's usually me, myself, and I. <laughs> so, so that it sounds a little sexist, but it is, um, you know, it, it's 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 research that has been well documented in terms of, you know, how to get more representation in in into political life, and 
And it, it's, it's something that I, you know, now that I'm in political life, I do find that to be true. Uh, you know, there are a lot of, you know, hereditary politicians that had the job because maybe their dad was premier or something. I'm not talking about prime minister, <laughs> um, but there, but there are a lot. And, and so, um, and, and so, you, you know, that's, that's kind of, a, it, it is a big difference for, for folks that, you know, get to office and people don't either look like them or they don't have the same life experiences or they don't have the same political relationships. And, uh, and that can be really difficult. You, you have, you have uh, prompted me to think of this in a completely different way. Um, I, I am not, um, although I do public speaking and all this, I'm not an extrovert and I don't, it takes a lot out of me to go and meet new people. So I would never make a good politician in that sense. But I can ask people to run. Yeah. I can support them. And I can do the behind the scenes stuff, which I have done. Um, but I've never asked anyone to run uh, yeah. for local government, right? And why? Like, why? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's key, right? Like, we have a mayoral race that's going to be open this time. Why are people not hiring for that job? And I, I mean, I think you have to think like a boss, <laughs> right? And And you have to staff these positions. And as a, as a resident of the city you live in, it's your job to find the folks that are running the city. And so if you think of it, you know, you're the boss. And so asking people to run is so fundamental to that. And then having a job description in your head that you want to see filled in a particular way. And, and so that's, that's really key. Asking people to run is, is really, if you don't want to be a politician, fine. But if you never knock a door and you never try to get someone across the finish line, I think you are part of the problem, frankly. I think you, I think folks need to think about that. And in, in particular, if they sit back and say, we're there's no women or indigenous women or black brown people on my my city council. Well, have you ever asked anyone? Have you ever asked anyone? Um, to run? And the answer will likely be no. Many people don't go around thinking that they can hire politicians. Um, and, and that's also what's wrong um, with democracy, I think, um, because there, there is a sense of that um, in more entitled circles <laughs> that, that, you know, just a few people are the ones that ask. It's just a few people that are the ones that design the system. And so I think that that's an important piece of, of redesigning systems is to get different designers. And, and so you might not be interested in elected office. And, and frankly, that's fair. It's really tough. <laughs> it's really tough. It is a job that many days you, especially in the dying days of summer here, where we just probed a few weeks ago, um, I'm flat out tired. Um, and it, it is a lot. And the complaints and the issues are still coming in. Um, and, and burnout is really real and, and burnout is particularly real. And we haven't really touched on this. It's really real amongst people who do represent different constituencies because they're the only ones. And so you get citywide responsibilities immediately when you're elected because you're the only ones with that, those relationships. And they've been waiting to get in. They've been waiting for a long time and they've been waiting with a list of issues for a long time. And so 
that that disproportionately affects women for sure in office, and it disproportionately reflects any intersectional reality, whether you're black, brown, whether you're indigenous, you know, whether you come from, you know, the the Asian community, you, you you're disproportionately affected by, you know, maybe how you look or the communities that you know and love, and 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 they've been waiting for representation a long time, so the list is huge, and so that that is a, a, another reality, and in particular, you know, uh, a reality that is well known. We had a, another um, Aboriginal justice inquiry where there were a lot of papers that were built, and a, a wonderful professor wrote a paper about being the only being the only policy analyst he was thinking of, Indigenous policy analyst. And and, and that effect is is just sort of well-known. Um, it's when you're just seconds beyond tokenism in your organization um, and you're reaching towards representation and inclusivity, there is a burden and there is a tax to be paid when you're the first or you're the second or you're the third or you're the only. And, and we don't talk about that enough. Um, and I think that that what needs to be well known, and in government that should be staffed, and so that that can be uh, that can affect uh, candidates, and it can it can affect their longevity too. Many of the school trustees that had served before me in the Winnipeg School Division that were Indigenous, um, they didn't last as long as their other counterparts. They didn't go to the next political career like their counterparts. They still served and worked in their community. But that that's an interesting story to tell. Same thing with women. They serve one term in office. They sometimes don't get a second term if they're premier. And so that that's also um, something to really look at and be examined. And um, for my part, I'm just trying to create more baby politicians. Um, I did, um, you know, six, I think, school trustee campaigns successfully and um, and then really trying to build members of the legislative assembly, members of parliament and and then keep uh, in contact with the ones that have been elected and, and keep them in office. Um, in in an act of solidarity and love because um, they're doing amazing work. I really enjoyed talking with Sherry and we'd love to have her back on the podcast again. In Canada, as in other parts of the world, representation matters, but so do approaches to governance. For example, issues of treaty with national or state or provincial level governments. Our Australian partners, SGS Planning, recently hosted a Q&A on treaty people in place, looking at the call for treaties by Indigenous peoples in Australia and the implications for local government, land use, and planning. Governance structure matters too at a local level. For example, the right to self-determination, including deciding what form governance takes on Indigenous-controlled lands. It also includes sometimes controversial efforts to have Indigenous-only representatives in local governments for all people, for example, Maori wards in New Zealand. But this is not a new story. Disputes about the nature of self-government and the form of representation are as old as the relationship between Indigenous and settler peoples. In this next interview, I spoke with Dr. Gerald Reed. He's an anthropologist at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut. He's been studying the political and social revival of the Haudenosaunee. These are the Indigenous people who were centered around what's now Ontario, Canada, and upstate New York. And people of European descent, like me, have traditionally called them the Iroquois, or Iroquois. Gerald has written a book about a man who basically made local government reform for the Haudenosaunee his mission. And when I first heard about this story, I knew I had to find out more. So I asked Gerald, who was this man and what was this mission about? 
Chief Thunderwater, it's his uh, popular name. Uh, his name at birth was Ogima Niagara. Um, and he was the leader of a political revitalization amongst the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois people on uh, reservations in southern Quebec and southern Ontario in the early part of the 20th century. Um, I think he's a particularly interesting character because while he didn't, he wasn't a resident of any of these uh, Haudenosaunee communities in Canada. He had a Haudenosaunee ancestry. He was Seneca. Uh, his father was Seneca, and on his mother's side, he was Sauk in Ojibwe. But he was uh, sort of born and raised on the road, I guess you might say. Uh, he was like a lot of indigenous people in the late 19th century who were not living on reservations. They were traveling around a bit. They were dislocated from reservations. They were dislocated from their home communities. They were seeking work. Some of them worked as Thunderwater did in the entertainment industry and Wild West shows and that sort of thing. And his parents traveled quite a lot, partly as a result of their involvement in entertainment work, partly as a result of their uh, diverse ancestry. And Thunderwater was a part of that, I guess you might call a traveling life. He eventually settled um, as a young man in Cleveland, Ohio and became involved in indigenous affairs, uh, a kind of a political activist in Cleveland, around indigenous issues in Cleveland in the early 1900s. He uh, became involved in political affairs in Haudenosaunee communities in upstate New York bet between about 1900, 1910, 1915. Uh, these were communities that he had a connection to through his, through his family, through his earlier life. And then around 1915 became involved in a political movement in Haudenosaunee communities in southern Quebec and southern Ontario. These were Haudenosaunee communities which had been under the pressure of the Canadian Indian Act. And there were a number of sort of assimilationist elements of the, of the Indian Act in Canada uh, in the second half of the 19th century. One of those one of the key aspects of Indian policy in Canada in the late 19th century was to transform native political culture and native political institutions. And what this meant in many communities, including these Haudenosaunee communities, was abolishing traditional systems of government at the local level and replacing them with Euro-American, Euro-Canadian style municipal government. Um, this happened in many of these um, Haudenosaunee communities in the um, uh, 1870s, 1880s, and 19, 19, uh, 1890s. These were uh, native communities of uh, Gahnawage, Akwesasne, Ganasatage, uh, Grand River, and Tyendinaga. And there had been an effort in these communities after traditional government was abolished, there had been an ongoing effort to remove the Indian Act system and to return to traditional government. What was this traditional government like? Because I'm not sure how many of our, our, our listeners will, will know about the Iroquois Confederacy. I don't I don't know much about it myself either. But I do know that it was it was actually quite sophisticated. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a constitutionally based uh, system. Mm -hmm. And then presumably that I don't know, but presumably that cascaded down to local levels as well, yeah, uh, that kind the, of complexity. Traditionally, and I guess kind of at the 
conceptual level, Haudenosaunee political organization was a three-tiered system. There was a kind of, there was a local level of, of local government um, based on a system of clan chiefs. It was a system in which men served as life chiefs for life. They represented clans within their communities. They were appointed to those positions and held those positions based on the permission of the senior women of the clan. They're sometimes known as the clan mothers. And they were their, their job was to represent the interests of their clan within the, within the community and decisions uh, that it had to make around a variety of local issues. That was the local level. Then there was a, a what we might call, I suppose, a national level. The Haudenosaunee Confederacy was composed of five and later six nations, the Mohawk, the Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, and Seneca, the Tuscarora added to the Confederacy in the early 1700s. Each of the nations within the Confederacy had a number of different villages or local communities. It had a local council. Representatives from that local council made up a national council. And then there was a third level, which was what we might call sort of international, where there were representatives from each of the different nations composed a confederacy council. And so the local level of government dealt with local affairs. The national level dealt with the affairs of a particular nation, the Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Cayuga, or Seneca. And then the Confederacy Council, which was composed of clan chiefs representing these five and then six different nations, that dealt with affairs between the five nations and dealt with external affairs. Uh, before European contact, that they would have dealt with affairs with other uh, native groups, non-Iroquois, non-Haudenosaunee groups. After European contact, those international relations involved relationships with the French and the English and, and other European groups. So that was the kind of the basic structure of the Iroquois Confederacy. There were a number of base, a number of important principles of the Confederacy. One was uh, consensus-based decision-making, right? So no decisions were made unless all the members of a council, the local council, the national council, the Confederacy council, no decisions were final until everyone agreed, until there was a consensus. So it wasn't a system of majority rule, right? It was a system, it was a consensus-based system of government. Um, another important principle was all adults, males and females, had the right and the opportunity to participate in the decision-making process. Um, males were the sort of visible leaders of the council, speaking as representatives of their clans, but they were appointed to their positions by the senior women of their clans and held those positions with the permission of the women of the clan. If they didn't adequately represent the interests of their clan, then they were removed, they were dehorned was the term, from those positions. So that was the basic system, right? Um, after European contact, this became much more complicated because there was a lot, um, there were um, Native people from um, different nations within the Confederacy were moving around a great deal within the Iroquois territory, the Haudenosaunee territory in upstate New York. There was an increase in warfare. There was an increase in disease. There was an increase in mortality in a lot of these communities. It became a very disruptive time. And then by the um, 19th century, 
Uh, most of the Iroquois people had been forced onto reservations in upstate New York and southern Quebec and southern Ontario. And so what they did was to adapt those basic principles of clan-based decision-making, consensus-based decision-making, male chiefs appointed to their positions by senior women of the clan. They adapted those principles to the circumstances that existed in their communities at that particular point in time. Then the Canadian government, the, the British government, uh, the, then the Canadian government after 1860, uh, with its Indian Act policies, focused on the assimilation of Native peoples in Canada um, and in the United States, imposed a European or Euro-Canadian model of government um, on these communities, which is essentially a municipal-based system of majority rule, only men vote, only men hold positions, right? So it's dramatically different, right? Dramatically different from the traditional system. There were some people in, in Haudenosaunee communities that favored this new system, that fa what's called the band council system. They favored the Euro-Canadian model of government. But there were, a lot, there were many people in these communities who resisted this, right? And so once the Canadian government abolished traditional government in these communities, there was an effort to revive that traditional system, right? And this was happening in all of these Haudenosaunee communities in the late 19th century. By the early 20th century, there was still a lot of interest in returning to traditional government, but um, the political um, momentum had really declined. Uh, the, the, the Indian Department in Canada was very effective at thwarting this effort to return to traditional government. So there was interest there, but the political energy of, of, of that had kind of declined over 25 or 30 years. Thunderwater comes onto the scene. He become a pretty active uh, leader in upstate New York. He then becomes involved in um, these Haudenosaunee communities in Canada and really begins to re-energize uh, this movement for traditional government. And so he didn't create the interest in traditional government. He kind of reignited the energy that was already there, had been there for a couple of generations, but had declined because it hadn't been successful. It hadn't been effective at countering the Indian Act or effective at reviving traditional government. Thunderwater, partly because of his, I think, his his oratorical skills, uh, his skills at, apparently he was a very effective speaker, very dynamic speaker. His background in the entertainment industry, he was a showman, and uh, he knew how to use the press. Uh, he was very confrontational with government officials. And I think this combination of factors, in combination with his own interest in kind of becoming um, a political person, right? Be, um, there was self-interest here um, as well. And I think this combination of factors came together in these Haudenosaunee communities and reignited this interest in traditional government. And so this political movement, it's some, even Canadian Indian Department officials were referring to this as Thunderwaterism or the Thunderwater movement, right? This persisted for about five years and initially, the Canadian Indian Department wasn't too concerned about this. 
But as Thunder Water became more popular and more effective in about four or five different Haudenosaunee communities in southern Quebec and southern Ontario, the Canadian Indian Department began to get concerned. I mean, right to the very top of the Canadian Indian Department, the Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs became personally involved in trying to stop this movement, to undermine this political movement, which was essentially a rejection of Canadian Indian policy. The Indian Department officials saw this not only as a rejection of federal Indian policy, they were concerned that this movement might succeed and spread to other indigenous communities, right? Where similar sorts of things had happened, where traditional governments had been abolished, where there had been interest in returning traditional government, the Canadian Indian Department was concerned that not only would this succeed in Haudenosaunee communities, it would spread to other communities. So initially they tried to brush Thunderwater off and ignore him, but then they couldn't because he was too effective. And the movement built, and he had hundreds and hundreds of followers in southern Quebec and southern Ontario. Initially they attempted to bar him from, from Canadian soil. Remember, he was from Cleveland, Ohio. So he had to come across the border from the United States into Canada. Um, so the Indian Department attempted to work with the Immigration Department to keep them out of Canada. They had no good reason to do that, right? He hadn't broken any laws. He wasn't doing anything illegal. Politically, uh, he was a troublemaker, right? But he wasn't a criminal, right? So they had no good reason to keep him out of Canada. So then they, then they attempted to... Um, undermine his credibility as a native person and as a political leader. They caught wind of a rumor that um, Thunderwater was not an indigenous person, but that he was a black man from Cleveland, Ohio. They also caught wind of a story that he uh, had a rumor uh, that he had abused a young boy. They attempted to use these two rumors that he was a black man from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, that he uh, that he was a child abuser, they attempted to use this to undermine his credibility by spreading these rumors through its network of Indian agents on Indian reservations to undermine his credibility. Um, I've done a lot of research on this. Um, I've spent a lot of time working in the Indian Affairs files um, on the Thunderwater case and in Thunderwater's own papers. And I'm absolutely convinced that not only was he not a black man from Cleveland, Ohio, he was Seneca, Sauk, and Ojibwe ancestry. And I think that the Indian Department came to the realization that he re he was who he said he was, right? <laughs> but yet they used these rumors of a kind of a dirty tricks campaign. They spread these lies and this information about him, which they knew to be false. And so that that factor combined with, I think, that was one factor in the decline of the Thunderwater movement around 1920. The other factor was as much energy as Thunderwater had been able to generate around this issue of traditional government and, and larger issues, really, of Haudenosaunee sovereignty, because ultimately what these political activists in the Haudenosaunee communities were looking for was not just a return to traditional government, they were looking for a restoration of Iroquois or Haudenosaunee sovereignty. Throughout their history, the Haudenosaunee people have maintained that they were allies, not subjects of Great Britain and of Canada. And um, they, this, was, this was another important political effort amongst Haudenosaunee people in the late 19th and early 20th century.
traditional government and sovereignty. Thunderwater re-energized that activism for traditional government and for sovereignty, but they didn't really have any tangible success. They had attempted to uh, take their case um, uh, to uh, the Queen uh, in London. They had attempted to take their case to the international courts. They had attempted to incorporate their organization in Canada. All of that was frustrated by the Canadian government, by the Department of Indian Affairs. So while there was this considerable energy that had been generated around these political issues, there wasn't any real tangible successes. That, combined with this dirty tricks, fake news campaign by the Canadian government, brought, so, so the Thunderwater movement gradually declined, it fizzled out, and it reappears. It didn't die, it didn't die out completely, right? It, it starts to move in different directions with other political leaders, right? So Thunderwater, as a political activist and a leader of a political movement, and the movement he was leading, kind of declined for a number of reasons. But the energy that he's generated continues in these Haudenosaunee communities, and it's taking different forms now. If you want to find out more about Chief Thunderwater and this revival of local traditional governance, Gerald Reed's book, Chief Thunderwater, An Unexpected Indian in Unexpected Places, is available through the University of Oklahoma Press. But one thing I do want to point out is that Chief Thunderwater is the name that he used as a show name and as his kind of political name, but it's very much based on his real birth name, which basically translates as boss or chief, his first name, and big waterfall or Thunderwater as his last name. So Chief Thunderwater. Today, the Haudenosaunee are still very much in a process of revival. And if you want to find out more about them, we'll have links available in our show notes, as well as a link to the newsletter which covered Indigenous communities and local government. If you're thinking, mm, that's not an issue where I am, well, maybe. But there's a lot to learn from local governments who have made progress on working with Indigenous peoples for all of us when it comes to representation for traditionally marginalized communities. Before we go, I want you to head on over to lgiu.org, where we've just opened up our annual Councillor Awards nominations for England and Wales and Scotland, and the Global Local Community Champion, which is for councillors outside of Great Britain. I know you know someone who deserves an award. I want to encourage you to sign up, of course, for the Global Local Recap, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Thanks for listening.